nonetheless, if you have been joining us for a couple of weeks now, you would know we are in this series called Footsteps of Jesus. And if you've been with us for a while now, you would know that the heartbeat of this series is really anchored in this verse, 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. And I think for a lot of us, we sometimes look at the story and life of Jesus and we could be falling to really the whole pattern of just looking at the example that He has given us and feeling well, maybe some of us, we feel encouraged, right? Wow, some of the things Jesus said is really encouraging and that's great. Now, some of us, we may look at the life that Jesus lived and we feel, well, we feel like we learn something, we are enlightened by, by what He said, we feel we grow wiser and that's great. Uh, one of the most recent ones was I was talking to a pre-believer, a student, and I said, oh, have you heard about the story of Jesus? And he said, yes, I have. And I said, oh, what do you think about that? And he paused and this student, this pre-believer said, you know, my one conclusion is the life of Jesus is very entertaining, all right? For some of us, we could look at the example Jesus left and feel like, wow, that's entertainment, right? But I hope that all of us as a church we will look at the example Jesus left and it will land us at a spot where we are not just encouraged, we don't just grow wiser, or we don't just feel entertained by the story, but we feel compelled to emulate the example that He has given us. I think that should really be where it should land us at when we read the life of Jesus. And I think this series is trying to land us at that little spot where now we desire and we know how to follow the footsteps of Christ. And I think we have worked through the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Tim started off talking about uh, the call, how Jesus stepped into his call. And I think Eugene talked about how really Jesus uh, started his ministry waging war with the enemy. Uh, last week, Joel talked about how Jesus navigated through his growing influence. And today, uh, I'm going to talk about Jesus seeing that his end is near. So we are potentially looking at maybe the later, uh, the later part of Jesus' second year in his ministry, uh, maybe into his early third year. And this was a season of Jesus' life where you could see very clearly Jesus knew that his end was coming. Now, how do we know that? Well, firstly is this. Uh, Jesus foretold his death at least three times to his disciples. And something about the Bible and when the authors write it, you know when something is being repeated a couple of times, that's something important. And I can imagine at a time when Jesus was into the later part of his second year, he knew his end was coming and he felt that it was important to prepare and tell his disciples. So uh, Mark records that Jesus foretold his disciples uh, that he's going to die at least three times. And the second thing we know uh, and we can assume that Jesus knew his end was coming was this. At all three times, interestingly enough, the author took effort to write down the location that they were at. So the first time he told, uh, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And you find that the next time he foretold his death, they were passing through Galilee. And if you're familiar with the whole region and the area, Jesus was really moving from the north to the south. 
Now that's an important info. Why? Because at the south is really the nest, the hub of all the religious leaders. Now these were the people that eventually plotted to kill Jesus. And somehow as Jesus began to foretell his death, he was walking literally to the enemy ground. So we know that Jesus knew exactly where he was going. It wasn't random. And he was essentially walking into his own death. And the third time, he writes this, that when he foretold, they were already going up to Jerusalem. And I think most of us here know, eventually it was there that Jesus was betrayed by his disciple. And eventually it was there, um, well, a place outside of Jerusalem where eventually Jesus was crucified. So we know that Jesus really saw that his end was coming. He wasn't just talking about it. He was literally taking steps towards that very moment. Now, what's interesting for today as I try to unpack uh, this whole process, I'm going to look into the three times Jesus foretold his own death. But I want to first start off by showing you all how the disciples responded each time Jesus said that he was going to die. So the first time Jesus told that he was going to die, and he told it really vividly. Some of you may know then this story. Peter pulled Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I don't know about you, but growing up, I read this, and in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, how, how, how blur, how dumb must Peter be to rebuke his rabbi? And I'm thinking to myself, back then, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, I'm telling myself, I'll never be like Peter. I'm, I'm at least a little bit smarter than Peter, okay? I know not to correct Jesus. But as I grew up and as I read this again, I realized that Peter had a very human response. Why? Of course, he writes, rebuke Jesus. But if I could put it into our context, that's potentially similar to when someone tells you about their own death or someone tells you about the possibility of them dying or, you know, what if I go to Cameron Highlands and then landslide and then I die and I don't come back to you anymore? You know, maybe sometimes you have that conversation with uh, your kids, your loved one, your friends. And what do you all do? You all say, Toy, right? Don't simply talk, right? Don't simply say, you don't know what you're saying. Take that back, take that back, take that back. Now, as I think about that, and when I think about this, what I just gave you might be a modern example of what Peter was doing. Really. And you think about it, all of us humans, especially when we are younger, we don't like to think about death. We would push that thought far away, and it makes sense. Why? Because the thought about death goes against every grain of our biology, which is trying to keep us alive. So every part, every fiber of you is trying to keep us alive, and you can imagine how the thought of death really goes against all of that. So it's very normal for us when we think about death, in the face of death, we like to push the thought far away. In fact, I remember one of the conversations I had with someone and it got a little bit deep and I was talking about, have you thought about, uh, you know, what happens when you die and all that? And this person was responding saying, oh, me dying? Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't think about that much. I said, oh, why? And this person's response was so real, saying, well, I don't like to think about me dying and I don't want to think about me dying. And I can imagine that response is something that a lot of us would have also. We would like to push the thought of death as far away as possible, far be it from you. Now, the second time 
Jesus foretold his death, we find that this was the response. Um, firstly, the disciples, I, I didn't put a verse in here, but the disciples heard it, and the Bible writes they did not understand what was being said. They did not quite understand. In fact, the Bible also writes they were fearful to ask Jesus. They were afraid to ask Jesus. Actually, what are you trying to say, right? The last time someone tried to say something to Jesus, well, that person got rebuked. That person's name is Peter, all right? Later, I'll tell you how Jesus responded to, to Peter. But the second time, they did not say anything. But later on, you find in the verse, it writes that the disciples started to have a conversation among themselves. And I've always thought that this conversation was very odd. Why is it that after Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to die, they started discussing about who was the greatest. And it, it, I, I got a bit odd with this, but then I realized, isn't that another very human response? Because for some of us here, the moment we have accepted that life is finite, the moment we have accepted that one day we are going to die, how might me then think, we might think, okay, how then can I make the most out of my life? How can I live a great life? In fact, I remember that there was once I attended this workshop was trying to help us to be purposeful and all that. And one of the favorite questions they like to ask is, imagine, imagine you are dead right now and on your tombstone, what do you want to have written, right? Your tombstone, what, what do you want them to write about you? And a lot of people will write, wow, I, I want to uh, be, be known, be remembered, or uh, known as a great doctor, a great entrepreneur, a philanthropist. A lot about greatness. Why? Because a lot of us, the moment we realize life is limited, life is short, one day we might die, we started to shift gear. We don't want to waste time anymore with life. We want to live a great life. Again, a very human response. And the third time Jesus foretold his death, again, a very weird response. Because right after we find that James and John, in fact, another author writes it was the mom of James and John, they started to ask Jesus this very interesting question. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And he said this, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And again, when I was younger, I'm reading this and I'm like asking to myself, what a weird way to continue the conversation right after Jesus said, I'm going to die. And then they go and say, Jesus, can we sit on your right? Can we sit on your left? Now, it's odd, but really, this, what they're asking, seat, really rep represents a place of recognition. It represents, really, after they die, they still want to be recognized, still want to be remembered for something. When I think about that, isn't that another very human response? That the moment we have accepted that, yes, I'm going to die, the moment we have accepted that maybe my death is not even very far away, then how do we begin to live life? We begin to live life in a way where now it's not just about greatness right now, but we hope that we leave something to be remembered by. We hope that we live in a way where eventually we are recognized even after our death. And I remember... 
I was having another conversation with a, a pre-believer, and this pre-believer was saying, Jason, actually, I really, really want to uh, explore the Christian faith and uh, maybe even the possibility of saying yes to being a Christian, to following Christ. But Jason, I've got one problem. My parents wouldn't allow. And I said, why? Why would you say so? Well, my parents, uh, based on their faith, they, they don't want me to allow to change faith because they want to make sure that being the only son in the family, someone still prays and, and all of that, right, to the ancestors, prays for them, takes care of uh, their grave and all that, even after they die. I said, okay, I can imagine that's very real. But I decided to push a bit further and I asked this student, I said, why does that matter to your parents, really? Put aside the religion side of things, put aside the tradition. Why does it matter so much that you go and pray for them, you go and clean uh, the grave and all that for them? And he said this, well, because my parents want me to remember them, even I after they pass. And I thought, that's very real. Isn't that most of us? That after we die, we hope that we are still remembered and recognized some way or another. And so here we see the three times Jesus foretold his death, we had three responses from the disciples and all of these responses, believe it or not, could be a response that any of us might have. They are very human response. One chooses to push away the thought of death, to, to rebuke it even. One decides to, you know, try to reach out for greatness, to live a kind of great life. They start to talk about who is great and all that. And the third says, you know what, then I, I desire to be recognized, to be remembered even after my death. Isn't that a very human response when we begin to see our own end? And today, for the main chunk of my sermon, I want to talk about how Jesus responded to these three responses. And I'm so glad that even as we talk about these footsteps of Jesus, Jesus did not remain silent to the responses that the disciples had. But I want to warn all of you because as I read this, I didn't quite like Jesus' response also. Can I be honest here, right? I didn't quite like because it poked certain things uh, in my heart that really has to be dealt with. And potentially as I deliver it to you all, some of you may feel a bit uncomfortable with what I'm going to say, but we are going to, we are going to go through it, okay? So the first thing, in response to Peter rebuking Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Jesus then decides to use that moment. He turned and saw his disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of men, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if any would come after me, and here's a tough sentence. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So instead of allowing us to deny the thought of death, Jesus says, you deny yourself. Instead of allowing us to be comfortable, to push away the thought of death far away from us, he says, you take up your cross. And here cross is not just talking about a lifestyle. It's not talking about a fashion item. It's not talking about an ornament at home cross at that time, when everybody heard cross, they knew cross meant death. And so here, Jesus' response was saying, well, don't, don't push the thought of death too far away. But he said, realize that it's not too far. In fact, carry it, keep it close. Keep this thought, this reality of you dying close to you. 
Now, of course, this statement is not asking us to live a very uh, self-harming, detrimental kind of a lifestyle. It's not giving you permission to eat McDonald's every day and saying, wow, you know, death is near me, all right? I, I'm going to eat whatever I want. No, it's not. But when you begin to embrace the reality of death, then it goes back to the previous verse before I said that. You begin to set your minds on the things of God instead of the things of man. Because when death becomes very real for you, you begin to think about the things that truly, truly matter. You know, recently, someone was asking me, this guy's in his 20s, all right? So I'm in my 20s also. And he was asking me, he said, uh, Jason, why would you choose to go into full-time? Really, why would you? And he told me this, and I, I'm quoting him word for word. He said, most people at your age are all just thinking about money, building income. And then he told me, this, hey, Jason, actually, even for me, money is too important for me to be able to do remotely anything close to what you're doing. So he asked me, honestly, in the car, I was fetching him. And he said, so why would you do what you are doing? And I told him, I said, first and foremost, money is also quite important to me, right? Of course, right? I need food and I love food, okay? And all that. So it's very real. But I told him this. I said, you know, however, I've come to the thinking that if God is real and if heaven and hell is real, then really what I might be doing, now I'm not asking any of us to go full-time, but what I might be doing in making disciples, in reaching the lost, that has eternity kind of a value. How in the world can I even compare the wealth right now with that? It cannot even compare in regards to importance. So I told him straight, I said, it's because I consider this too taught. For me, it's a no issue. It's a no competition because it's so clear to me which matters more. And of course, some of you might say, oh, well, Jason, you are very naive to think that way. Maybe true, maybe true. But at the same time, those of you who know me, right, my mom passed away because of cancer. So that reality helped me to realize that death is not too far from any of us. And because of that, it really shaped my thinking to begin to focus on what really matters. Now, some of you then might argue, Jason, how do you know that sharing the gospel, making disciples and all that, how do you know that is what matters? Well, very simple. Because in verse 35, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, take note of this, for my sake and the gospel. Jesus made it real plain and clear what matters most, him and the gospel. So the first thing in response to Peter pushing away the thought of death, he says, you learn how to deny yourself and you learn how to embrace the reality of death. To the second one, he, he responded this way. He says, so they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the chop. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, if any of you want to be great, well, here's how Jesus defined great. He says, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, that, that, that is not great in our current dictionary. Let's be honest here, right? Great means I have the power to move resources at my will. If I ask someone to do this, they will do this. If I ask this person, move them, they will move that. That is great. That's powerful. But Jesus says, no, in my vocab, here's how great looks like. You be the last of all and you serve all. Well, Jesus, serve all, 
so who do I serve? I don't mind serving Pastor Tim, right? He's included in it all. I don't mind serving um, Pastor Stephen, right? Wow, all these great men, right? Who does all include? And interestingly enough, Jesus responded by saying this. He took a child, put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. He said to his disciples, whoever receives one such child, he gives them an example. Here is what it's like serving all. And he says this now. Again, when I used to read this, like, oh, that means what? We need to do kids' ministry, right? What does it mean, right? Actually, here, receive really talks about showing hospitality. Almost like you are serving a guest in your house, right? An esteemed guest. But Jesus then here says, here's who you, I want you to serve, a child. Why a child? Because at that time, a child was really, I'm so sorry, right? It was really treated like an object. If I tell the child, do A, the child has to do A. All the child needs to do is obey me, and follow my instructions. That was really the social status of a child. If anything, the child serves me. And here is what Jesus is trying to say. You know, when he talks about serving all, you go to this extent. You serve even those that should be serving you. That's what it means. When you consider death, and when you begin to want to seek greatness in life, here's how Jesus defined greatness. You serve even those that should be serving you. That's great. And the third one, when Jesus foretold his death, here was what it was written. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Of course, they're like, wow, who are the two of them, right? To seek, uh, to sit at the most, remember the most recognized uh, spots, right? In the whole of maybe heaven, right? Of course, beside left and right of Jesus. What other place is there better to sit? So uh, people were upset at them. How dare they ask this? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. And he repeats that same thing from the second one. And whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. And I love this last line. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I can imagine in response to us desiring to be recognized, to be remembered even after our death, Jesus was recognized and he was remembered for something even after his death. What was he recognized for? What was he remembered for? Serving. He was recognized and remembered for how he gave his life for everyone in the desire to serve the people around him. That was what Jesus was recognized for at his death. And when I read this, I had to humble myself and really ask myself, Jason, if your Lord, the one you are following, is recognized after his death for how he gave his life for the others to serve them, who am I to be one to be recognized for anything more esteemed than that? Because to follow Christ means this. We begin to chart our lives, live our life in a way where we hope that eventually in our death, when we are remembered, we are not remembered for how brilliant we are. That's great. That's nice. We are not remembered just for how good we are at earning money. That's great. That's nice. We are not just remembered for how skillful we are, for how good looking we are, for how well we sing, for how influential we are. I hope, at least for me, that one day when I die, and I know I will, 
that I'm recognized and remembered for how I serve even those who should be serving me, but instead I came and lived a life that served them. And I'm hoping that this is not just my desire and it's not just a nice thing to say on pulpit. I'm saying this because as we talk about the footsteps of Jesus, I'm hoping that this too becomes your desire. That you begin to relook at your whole life, your whole life, your whole life. And you begin to chart in a way, how can I remember for how I serve those around me? Because that's what it means to follow the footsteps of Jesus, even as we see our end. And today, before we enter into dialogue, I thought before we even reconsider how we want to live our own life, let's take this moment to remember and recognize how Jesus came to serve and not be served and how He came as a ransom for many. And how we're going to do this is once every month, we partake in this thing called the Holy Communion, which most of you, when you came in, you had this. And if you don't, you could just raise your hand. I, I think maybe there will be ashes serving if you don't, right? Uh, let's not proceed without everyone. If you, if you consider yourself a Christian, right? Having one of these elements. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, you don't have to feel obliged to take part in this. But if you want to, you, you could. Basically, this is really a little act to remember and recognize what Jesus did. You know, when I was preparing this sermon, I... I couldn't help but feel so grateful that the God we serve and the God we follow of all the things that He asked to be remembered by, not about how many miracles He did. In fact, He didn't even bother making sure all the miracles were written in the Bible. He didn't even bother. He wasn't even remembering necessarily all the, the sermons, but I think the life that He lived the greatest thing that we could remember Him for was how He sacrificed His life for us. And today as we partake the elements, I'm going to read out a verse for y'all. And then we can partake the elements together. And it reads this. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Take note of this, He says. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord's sacrifice even as we take the break. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. And again, the same few words, in remembrance of me. Let us once again remember the life Jesus lived, even as we partake the cup. Just today, even as we talk about the life you lived, we know, Jesus, that there was a certain phase in your life you saw that your end was near. And I'm so grateful that of all the things you taught the disciples first, you told them, 
Don't, don't push the thought. Don't push the thought of death far away. Instead, you learn to embrace it because that helps you know what matters. And help us even as we embrace the reality of our own mortality, help us to begin to live in a life, live a life that focuses on what really matters, on you, Jesus, and the gospel. And even as we seek to live a great life, help us to redefine what greatness looks like. And greatness in your definition is really to be a servant of all, serving even those that should be serving us. And at the end of our life, let us be recognized and remembered for the same thing that you were recognized and remembered for, Jesus. For how you came to serve rather than be served. And I pray that we will begin to chart our lives in such a manner, in such a way, even as we follow your footsteps. This I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen.